Standing in a case brought by 11 marijuana companies who say the state did not fairly issue dispensary licenses last December continued into its 16th day this week, with plaintiffs bringing a variety of complaints to the court's attention. Their testimony, the state's pushback, and our reporting on this interesting case coming up next on Indie Matters. Welcome to this special edition of Indie Matters brought to you by the Nevada Independent. I'm Elizabeth Thompson, the managing editor. Our regular show is taking a break for the rest of July and some of August. And in lieu of that, for the next few weeks, one of the editors will be chatting with an indie reporter each week about one or more stories they've been working on. This week, I'm joined by one of our summer interns, Michaela Chesin, who will be with us for a few more weeks before she heads back to the University of Massachusetts for her senior year. Is that right? Yes, my senior year. Uh, I'm sure if she's... <laughs> are you looking forward to getting back to your studies or not so much? I'm excited to wrap things up, but it's just kind of nerve-wracking what comes after that. Uh, yes, then <laughs> the big jobs, the big job search. Well, we love Michaela. She's uh, been great. Uh, and if anyone wants to make a huge donation uh, to us such that we can hire her uh, after graduation, that would be great. Uh, I love most, that. Yeah, we love donations. Um, <laughs> as everyone who listens to this podcast knows, we are a nonprofit. It's a 501c3. Any donation is a tax-deductible charitable contribution. Um, You can go on our donor page and take a look at uh, all the donations we've received since we launched from $5 uh, all the way up into nearly the millions. Uh, Now we love each and every one of our donors and listeners. So uh, if you want to donate to us, we sure do appreciate your support. Okay, Michaela, you have been glued to this courtroom in this big case against the state in which Many applicants, 11 in total, who did not receive marijuana dispensary licenses last year have brought suit complaining that the process was not fair in terms of how the applications were rated um, and, and which was the basis for why they didn't get approved. Um, and then there's a, another complaint that centers on whether the process as it has turned out to be reflects the ballot question language that voters actually approved. So there's kind of a two-pronged set of objections uh, here. But give us kind of an overview as you've been sitting in the courtroom. What what has struck you the most and and what do you think voters who voted either for or against this need to know about this case? Yeah, Elizabeth, it's been – so I went in starting to cover this and thought it was just going to be a day-long hearing. And now we're on the 16th day. So there's a lot to the process that I did not even understand before. Um, so they had this, the Department of Taxation, the state, hired um, Manpower, which was this affi- a third-party affiliation to license the applicants, to score the applications. And there's a lot of argument on how this group comes into play as well. So that was another thing that came in. So let's just, let's stay on that for a second. Mm-hmm. And we'll take a piece of this at a time. So you're saying that temporary employees hired through manpower were what? They were trained by the Department of Taxation to review these applications and to assist with the scoring. Is that the case? Yeah. And so most part, mo- like a big um, argument on behalf of the state was that these, they were fair because they were hired externally. They were third party but it was just questions about how they were trained in that process that these license, li- these people that did not get licenses have questions about. That's just one of the prongs. There's many prongs behind um, people higher up in the department and who they were talking to in that process. Talk a little bit more about that. What what do we mean? What 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 are the complaints? And we want to be clear here, listeners, as we're talking about this, we're talking about testimony in court of the plaintiffs. Um, which are not necessarily the same thing as facts. So these are these are their opinions. Um, there have been facts presented, of course. We'll do our best here as we're, we're talking to distinguish between them. Uh, but it's always important in a legal proceeding to remember um, that there is there are three sides to uh, every single case. That's the that's their side, uh, your side, and then uh, hopefully the truth, which is the judge's job, I think, to um, to figure out. So. Um, 
when we're talking about those who were higher up the ladder managing these temp workers and managing the process at the Department of Taxation, what are the complaints or what are, what are the allegations of what went on there that, that indicated that things may not have been done in a way that was fair? So mainly the complaint is the uh, relationship between those seeking licenses and the people that were higher up in the Department of Taxation. So there were lunches and dinners um, between some applicants and, uh, for example, Jorge Pupo, who was one of the executives uh, within the Department of Taxation, and discussion about what went on within this process. So a big complaint was that um, these license, these people seeking licenses knew what was on the application prior. So they knew how uh, diversity was going to be graded or the floor plans and what would be left out so they can cater their applications for the department. Okay, so the complaint was not just that the applicants were being chummy with the Department of Taxation executives, meaning having meals with them. There's a On top of that, the plaintiffs were saying... Did they have any proof that any of the applicants actually did have advance information on how those applications were going to be ranked? I'm not sure if they had proof. I think it was more so questioning why um, some of these people, like how, so an example would be there's a diversity uh, component of the application and there were some changes to some applicants' boards beforehand to include women or minorities and why were those changes made before the application process? And what did those people know that the other people um, applying didn't? And so it was, it was more allegation than anything. Um. Sure. So let me – I want to get clarification on something for myself as mm-hmm. well as the listeners. So is it the case that the scoring system for the applications was done all at once and it was what it was? Or am I hearing you say – that the way the applications were scored actually changed from the time they were first written Mm -hmm. to the time when the applications actually were being considered. Yeah, there was quite a few changes, actually. There was even two applications that came up during the trial. So um, that they took the ballot question and they heard it to state regulations to create this application. And so when they were to add hearing um, from the state regulations to make the application, there ended up being two copies of an application that came up that had uh, slight changes to it. I think, I'm not 100% certain, but I think it was a 5% background check versus um, everyone have, every owner having a background check. Okay, so just to fill our listeners in on that, there was a requirement, and I this was part of the ballot question, because there's a, always a concern in the marijuana industry about impropriety, because up until very recently, um, ma- marijuana was not legal, other than medically in the state of Nevada, and certainly in other states we know it's not le- legal uh, whatsoever recreationally, and then, of course, we're dealing with federal law. So one of the things the voters approved in Nevada um, was that any owner who had a 5% ownership or more in a marijuana business would have to undergo a background check. So that's what Michaela's referring to with the background checks. So what I'm hearing you say, uh, Michaela, is that one application had a stipulation for 5% uh, ownership, had to have a background check, and you had to check that little box for all your owners, and you're saying there was a second application that that did not or that differed in some way? It differed because in the ballot question language, it required that all owners have a background check. And then later in the final application, um, there was one with people above 5% or more ownership getting a background check. Okay. So it was a difference between every single owner or those who had 5% ownership or or more. Okay. Um, What the diversity component, let's go back to that for a second. So I'm understanding that there was a scoring system in which if there was a a person of color or or female who was an owner or a partial owner in a business – uh, that there was a privileging of those applications over other applications. Is that right? Yeah. So the the state and uh, in accordance to the ballot question, they when they were going through this round of licensing, it was differing 
differing from the medical marijuana licensing in a few aspects, but the main one is that they were going to add this diversity component um, to help uh, minorities because there was this long, uh, like illegal with drug crimes and stuff like that. They were talking about how they wanted to make sure that they incorporate minority owners into the into the system into the system. Okay. Um, and so when they started, but now there's allegations that they didn't, um, they didn't accurately do that, or they, or there was some way that applicants kind of messed with that system in some way or in another. Okay. Do you, do we have any examples of how they messed with it? Are you saying, for example, that a company maybe that didn't have any women who were owners hurried up and got, a, you know, someone in the t- on the team um, between the time that the, you know, application was mm-hmm. in or the time it was approved? That is that what we mean, that kind of thing? Or someone that's an employee who get, gets pushed up before the application process. Okay. Um, I'm thinking in particular of um, Frank Hawkins' t- testimony because he had majority minority owners, but he didn't get awarded a license. And he had some questions on how the minority part of the application or the diversity part of the application applied um, because obviously he didn't get a license or so sure. he wanted to know who who did and how did they benefit from this sure. and how it was manipulated. And, was and that's part of the problem here, isn't it, Michaela, the, that the scoring system that was applied to these specific applications by these specific businesses, no one can see them, right? The applicants haven't seen them all. The mm-hmm. voters haven't seen them all. We as journalists have not seen them all. Correct, you, correct me if I'm wrong, but part of the problem here is that the only entity in the state that has, as far as we know, all the information from beginning to end about how the application was created and how the process went and how they did the scoring and what the final scores were, that all lies with the Department of Taxation, correct? Yeah. There was also a bill that was passed fairly recently that helped that transparency process. And so the this information was released, but within the process, um, there was a lot left unknown. So in Hawkins' testimony as well, he said he went to the Department of Taxation after he wasn't awarded a license to try to get someone to go through it with him. And no one came to the table to present that until the hearing. And the hearing in the hearing there has been showing how uh, different scoring processes and where they went through and how the department thought within that. So within this 16 days, there has been some of that um, shown. So it's not completely left in the dark. Okay. Um, But there still are some questions. Like no one from Manpower has came in and testified which um, some of the plaintiffs did voice their opinion on as well. Saying that they wanted to hear from manpower employees who were actually involved in the process. Is that what you mean? They wanted to hear how they graded it and what they were told in that grading process. So I presume that the plaintiff's attorney, if that person so desired, could subpoena someone from manpower. Are you aware that that might happen or that that's going on behind the scenes right now? Possibly, but I'm not. I'm not completely aware. Okay. Um, so, other than the concerns about scoring related to diversity and background checks, what other concerns uh, have we heard from the dispensary owners who um, basically are trying to convince the court, just so the listeners understand, to extend an injunction? Mm-hmm. There's an injunction right now, basically putting the entire thing on hold until the judge decides whether. The applicants who received licenses can go ahead and move forward with those licenses to do business or whether there needs to be some type of a change to the process, which which could presumably throw the whole thing on its head. So what else are these these disgruntled dispensary uh, – we can't call them dispensary licensees, but these aspiring dispensary owners, what, what else are they concerned about? They had concerns over floor plan um, and how – like there was, there was a provision about if you have a sink, not in a bathroom, but like on the facility floor and how that could benefit your scoring. And if the people in, who were cl- had a closer ties to the department knew about that um, lighting. And then also another thing that was left out of the um, 
within the evaluation was location. And if you had to have a location specifically listed, and um, they didn't count, acquire that into their application process. Okay, let's take these one at a time. Mm-hmm. So you're saying that the floor plan, including things like where the plumbing facilities or or lighting were ev- located even within that floor plan was part of the scoring process. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that the applicants who were denied are insinuating or alleging that there was some unfairness there because certain applicants knew what was expected and so they made adjustments to their floor plans? Did did that get said out loud in court or was it just more... And yeah, and floor plans right there, it's a plan. It's not concrete. So if someone knew that they wanted a sink on the convention floor, the dispensary floor, and that increased their points, they, they said that's unfair because they did not know that prior. They could have just added a sink into there. Sure. So that's interesting. So what I'm hearing you say is that it's, the complaints are not so much what the parameters were, but that not all applicants knew what all the parameters were or how they would be scored. Exactly. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, certainly if I had been denied, um, I'd be, I most likely would have these same questions. So it certainly, certainly makes sense. Okay. And then on location, we're talking about the physical location of the business, Mm -hmm. correct? What street, what street or cross street it's on, right? And yeah, the argument there was that they did not seek that exact information. So some of the businesses that were awarded licenses, they had maybe options or things things regarding that, but they didn't require an exact location. So say if your floor plan, you created this floor plan, but it didn't acquire to the exact location. How could you say, how can you further that person along if it wasn't, does that make sense? Sure, sure. Yeah, um, it does. Well, each one of these points makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and because... I mean, if it's true that there were no clear guidelines about the point and the scoring system up front that were communicated to every single applicant, I mean, it seems to me, I'm certainly no expert in these matters, but just as a person who's a writer and an editor whose job it is to make sure that things are communicated clearly, it seems to me that all of the requirements of the application and the scoring system could have just been included in the application form itself, right? And then every single applicant could have read every single point and what their parameters were and how much it was yeah. going to be scored, completely open to everybody, no questions. You fill it in. You either do or you don't. You check your box or not. Um, and and there you have it. So it does seem to me whether the judge determines that there was anything rising to the level of wrongdoing or unfairness, but not having all of the crucial scoring information in writing distributed to everyone at the same time, almost without argument creates an unfair Mm -hmm. scenario, right? Because people with different pieces of information aren't going to all end up in in the same place. Do do I, do you think I have that about right? That was a great explanation is that they just wanted it to be upfront and transparent, which is what they, these disgruntled um, company owners didn't feel that they got. They wanted things to be, and with Sisolak's bill, there is improvement to that system. And the yeah, state, ta- let's talk about that bill. So what, what t- that bill that passed the legislature and that Governor Sisolak signed, and by the way, he promised before the session in his state of the state that he was going to create uh, a commission um, to oversee um, the marijuana industry in Nevada, that he wanted Nevada to become the gold standard in the same way the gaming industry has become the gold standard. Um, so he made it very clear up front that this was important to him, and that commission did get formed. But let's talk about that that bill. What what did that bill do and, and, and force on the industry that was not happening before? It brought forward the information, um, how these, who are the players within the industry, and it made that process much more transparent. And it it was filed after this lawsuit uh, was initially filed back in March. Um, So it brought all these complaints forward and allowed the public to see who's involved and where is that stemming from. Because before, um, there was complaints about 
who are these players and where do they fall within the system? Yeah, there were complaints. I mean, to put not too fine a point on it, there was suspicion at the very least um, that there might be, uh, you know, that that good old word called cronyism that's been around forever, which is that people who were politically connected uh, or had some financial or political clout, let's say, uh, in their communities and, and in the state um, were perhaps more likely to get approved uh, than others. Um, and naturally, uh, Anyone who's not part of that select privileged group uh, is going to raise uh, an eyebrow at, at the process if that's the case. So I, I think that's one of the drivers of this uh, lawsuit is that these dispensary owners who didn't happen to have someone on their board or on their team um, who had that kind of, of clout are, are suspicious, at least, um, that they were, they were left behind uh, for that reason, and that, that that's creating a situation that the voters never intended. I, that's really what this comes down to, because the voters are the ones who passed um, this. And, and so there's this strong feeling, I think, um, not just by the people who were denied licenses, but by people who are just interested in this topic in general. There's pretty strong feeling that, hey, we want the little guys to have a chance, too, or the medium-sized guys to have a chance, too. Why shouldn't they have a shot? Um, at being part of what's becoming a multi-billion dollar industry uh, in this country and that's already brought in tens of millions of dollars in revenue um, to the already approved owners as well as to the state through through the excise taxes that have been have been levied. I think that has especially been heightened with the how few of business um, business holders got these 61 licenses. So these 61 licenses were given to only 17 different marijuana um, industry And companies. how many were applicants were there? 461, if I'm remembering correctly. So 461 businesses or separate no, ap- applications? Ap- separate applications. So how, do we know how many businesses uh, we can we... Ex- I don't know if I have that number on okay. top of my head. But okay. But only 17 businesses ended up with licenses to operate. 17 out of the 61 accepted. Okay. So that's not many. That's a, that is a small group. Um, part of the issue here, um, I guess, not that I'm defending the state, but just to talk facts, is that when the recreational marijuana laws were passed, um, it was up to either the state or the counties, and there was actually some wrangling, if people may remember, in the early um, year, that, that first year or two, that over how many licenses would be granted in each county and then how many total would be granted across the state. And the number was not large. Um, and I think there was a deliberate attempt by policymakers at a county and a state level um, not to grant too many licenses, at least in the initial years of this, because they wanted to keep a handle on it, get some dispensaries open, get some grow facilities open, get the consumers in there, you know, buying the product, take a look at the whole system, see if anything needed to be tweaked or changed before they started just giving out, you know, dozens of licenses all over the place. So there, there is an argument to be made that when you allow a new industry to start up in your state, taking it slow, um, it could be considered wise and, and reasonable. And, and naturally, though, that creates a little bit of an unfair process, because if you're limiting the licenses, then not everyone can have one. Um, so that so that's another part of it, and I'm sure you've heard the state arguing just yeah. that in the courtroom, right? There's been a lot like they couldn't give licenses to everyone. So no matter who gets it, who doesn't, you're going to be upset because there's a lot of money on the line. And sometimes these businesses, especially they, if they were involved in the medical marijuana industry, they've been doing this for years. It's their life. So if they don't feel like they have a chance to get in with the big dogs, or they don't feel like they're going to survive in the market, there's going to be some fight in them. Uh, but the state's argument was that they did the best they could. There's areas they can improve on, but they didn't They didn't feel like they did anything unfairly. Yeah, that's really the crux of, of their defense is that there are possible improvements that could be made, but based on the limited number of licenses that could be issued, that for the most part, um, they did their jobs. You, you, you said something just then that I know got said out loud in court um, yesterday, uh, one of the owners of a business that did not receive a license um, basically said that he expected to go out of business 
um, as a result of not having a license because his grow business um, will have too much competition, basically. In other words, that he expects to get squeezed out mm-hmm. um, by the licensees who have the ability to build out their own grow facility if they if they want to. In other words, and why wouldn't you, right? If you have a license and you can do the whole job from A to Z, from growing to packaging to distribution, you're going to do that, right? Yeah. Because you want to keep your costs in-house most likely. Um, so that got said out loud in court today. I imagine it was pretty emotional when it got said, correct? Yeah, there, there's been owners there, the the plaintiffs in the case who have showed up for every single day or almost every single day of that court. So there's a lot on the line for them. I think the most is that they feel if they've been working in their community for so long and being afraid that these outside um, marijuana dispensary people come in, they feel like they're taking away that piece of their community. Um, So that was another big, so it is emotional because it isn't just them, it's their customer base and who comes to them regularly. It's just like having kind of a business that um, caters around you and that you build a community in that. Okay. Is there anything we have forgotten on the list of plaintiff complaints and, and allegations that has come out so far? And uh, and more may come out. We've got another hearing scheduled for Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Um, and we and don't know how many more. statements. Yeah, go ahead. Um, so, yeah, I think Tuesday is they're trying to wrap up Every um, trying to wrap up the schedule and trying to see when they can schedule closing statements, which will probably be sometime in August. Okay, so it's your sense that we're getting close to the end yes, of the testimony. Yes. Okay. Close. All right. Well, from uh, going into a courtroom <laughs> thinking you were going to spend one day um, to your 16th day of coverage, this is how things work sometimes mm-hmm. in journalism. The story does not always unfold quite the way. Um, you think it's going There's to? There's a lot there, definitely. Absolutely. Too. So another thing I was interested as I, in reading as I read your stories, and by the way, Michaela, I think, has written four reports yeah. so far on courtroom proceedings. So you should just go to the website, uh, click on the navigation bar on uh, the on marijuana is the easiest way to do it, and that'll take you um, right to our page, and you'll see Michaela's stories. It's probably the easiest way to um, to find them. So she's provided uh, recaps in recent days of testimony that took place, pushback from the state, things that were said in court with a little bit of context as um, as well. And I do, uh, we're starting to get low on time already. I can't believe how fast the time goes. I want to ask you about your experience reporting. But before we get to that, it was brought up in court more than once that these dispensary applicant um applicants who were denied licenses could perchance purchase a license from someone who has a license, right? Yeah, this has been involved within the last two days of testimony. Um, the state w- was asking questions geared towards, so if you could buy a license, would you? And how how many would you want? Would you want all the six ones you applied for? So I think they're kind of garnering those questions to see if um, the plaintiffs would have still went through a case if they we're able to get licenses. Do you, is it your sense? And um, I mean, you were in the courtroom and I haven't been so, um, and I'm not asking you to say anything you're not sure of. So mm-hmm. it's fine to just say you're not sure if you don't know. But is it your sense that the state is in there kind of fishing around for solutions? In other words, that um, at the end of the case, is it, is there a possibility? Regardless of kind of how the ruling goes, that maybe the state might is may, perhaps considering making some cha- additional mm-hmm. changes to how we do our licensing and maybe even how many licenses are available and to the point that maybe we will put some licenses up for sale at some some point. Do you, do you see that on the horizon yeah, as a possibility? Definitely. The state has been very upfront about um, like owning up to the things that they believe they did wrong or the things they could improve on. Um, and I think those questions did kind of tick off something in my head, wondering, are they pl- trying to reach an agreement with them after the injuncture or hearing? What will be the next steps after? Because they were trying to get into the specifics of wh- how many licenses or sure. um, what, what were these plaintiffs wanting that they didn't get? Sure. There's always, in a case like this, it's rare that there would be some kind of out-of-court settlement, mm-hmm. Um 
But that's not to say that there isn't some kind of talk behind the scenes uh, about possible solutions. And in, in the case of one of these owners who is actually asking for damages, um, the state, if it loses, does stand to lose um, some money. So there, there's there's more money at stake here than just that of being able to sell, you know, marijuana in your in your shop, right? Yeah, definitely. Okay, great. Um, so let's step back a little bit. So you are a a new and a young reporter. You've you've had a couple internships and you've. You've worked as a um, reporter as you've been studying um, up to become a, a journalist. I know myself from decades of experience that court reporting is tough and it's tricky and it can be exhausting. Mm-hmm. It can be really hard. You're in there listening to so many people say so many things. It can be very difficult at the end of the day to go, okay, wow, I just heard so many words like, what do I pull out? What Because you can't possibly report on every sentence, right? So you have to come away from that courtroom deciding what are the main points? Were there any turning points today? And, you know, what do I need to convey to the readers about what happened there? So just talk a little bit about your experience and in, in getting this figured out as you, as you kept showing up every day. Yeah, I've never done courtroom reporting. And most of the reporting I've done before, it's like you're kind of moving all over the place. You have to make sure you get a photo and a video there and talk to so many people at once. And this is a lot of sifting at the end of a day. Um, so that was kind of the more, more so the challenge of it is like sifting through all this information and um, you really just have to like step back and think what was the most important thing said what did that mean who did that tie to because there's a lot of testimony a lot of allegations being thrown out there and in your story you don't want to like make it all allegations but what was the meat of what was said that day um, who was the prime what was the primary complaint of that day but yeah it did t- it does take some time afterwards because you kind of just have to debrief with all those words thrown out you but I'm really grateful because I haven't had this type of experience before. Yeah, it's great. Uh, we weren't even planning on it, Michaela. I mean, it just sort of happened because we, like you, thought that, you know, this would probably be a short hearing. And so I think, you know, when Michelle and I agreed that you would go, we just thought, okay, fine. You know, this will be a great experience for her one or two days. And, you know, we'll be here for her and, you know, we'll, you know, we'll kind of help her work. And then initially we were just going to let you cover it, take all your notes, write everything down. And then we were going to get together um, and help you work on kind of one big story, right, about the whole case. And then we decided, I can't remember, do you remember what day it was when? Yeah, it was a couple weeks back where we were just like, there's so much testimony that we have to start breaking it down. I was like, I can't like, to include all the testimony and all the witnesses into one piece would be a little bit too hard. So Yeah, yeah. So there was a turning point, I think, last week mm-hmm. when Michelle just suggested, you know what, I think we should just start reporting what's going on in the courtroom. Um, each day um, and and pull nuggets out because this has extended so long. Um, we kind of th- thought we owed it to our readers to let them know what was going on in the case. And then also we didn't want to have to write a 9,000-word story <laughs> at the end yeah. of the case either. So um, what, did, what did you find – what have you found fun about it or interesting about it? Or what, what have you learned that has maybe surprised you from sitting in that courtroom? Definitely the dedication of the plaintiffs that were sitting like beside me, beside me who had this background knowledge of like why it was really important for them to show up every day. I found that surprising because most of the time you just like let it up to your attorneys. But these business owners, they're passionate and like they, they need to be there to represent and like they'll go up and talk to attorneys if they feel like they they need something else to be said. Um how many attorneys were there in the courtroom? We haven't talked wow. much about the attorneys, but how many attorneys on either on each side or as a total have, have been there every day? I want to say there was nine on the plaintiff side and about like 12 on the defending side. Wow. But primarily like five talked on the defending side. Okay. So That's many. That's a lot yeah. of lawyers. <laughs> a lot of, lot of lawyers. Um, and there's, yeah, they were split. I would talk to one of the plaintiffs of like how it was like split up in different ways because some lawyers are representing some plaintiffs and so on. But Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, what about the judge? How has the judge's demeanor been with, with all of this? How 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 is the judge running the courtroom? Is is it with an iron fist or has it, but there been some latitude? What, what's been the feel? 
she really wants um, – she's very open with, like, getting more witnesses on because there have been a couple times where we think it's the last day and then um, an attorney asks for more witnesses. And so she's been very lenient on that. Um, she jokes around with the, the attorneys quite a bit. And um, tell, tell the listeners her name so we know who – Elizabeth Gonzalez. There we go. Okay. So there's been some some joking around and some joviality. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, she has M&Ms at – for every witness at the desk and water. She's very sweet. Oh, but, that's nice. Yeah. Um, what has the states... So how, I'm curious about the demeanor of the state's attorneys as they've been questioning, cross-questioning the the plaintiffs. Ha, have there been any fiery moments where tempers might have flared a little? Or has the state been trying to be really deferential to, to people on the witness stand? Or is it a little bit of both? I would say there's fire on both sides. There's definitely been points in both both sides of testimony. So um, on the plaintiff's side, them they're like cross-examining um, people on the stand uh, from the state. And those have definitely gotten fire, pulling up things from their past and um, from the pasts of the applicants? N- not the applicants, of people working within the state. Interesting. Yeah, there there is a, quite a few testimonies that really like were jarring about um, some of these state employees, like criminal records or something like that. Can you give us an example or even uh, – can you remember? I know you have a lot um, of information in your brain from this case, so so don't feel uh, you know don't say anything you're not mm-hmm. comfortable saying. But can, is there an example you can give us of a state employee where who got called into question on sort of an integrity issue? Yeah, so I was like, the attorney. One of the attorneys on the plaintiff's side was questioning a state official about her, um, like how she's been involved with the criminal justice system before or, like, the criminal system, and then it, like, ended up leading to them asking about, like, a certain shoplifting case. But it was, like, very much building up. And Interesting. Then it was from, like, nine years prior. But the I don't believe that the state knew because that was part of the question. It was, like, did you did you notify the state when you applied for this job? Oh, about this past case that, that this person was involved in? Yeah. Wow, it's just, like, television. Yeah, there was some intense – I was like, what, how does this correlate? But I, they were kind of throwing it all in as they could. I mean, we've all watched a few lawyer dramas on TV <laughs> over the years, right? These are the kind of things that happen in those scripts, mm-hmm. right, where you're, pe- things are getting pulled up from people's past and kind of yeah. tarnish their reputation a bit with the court and and, and call their credibility into question, right? Mm-hmm. Playing a little bit dirty, but <laughs> it's it's interesting to say the least, and it, it – flares up tensions within the court. Huh, that's so. interesting. I bet the court transcripts themselves would make a great um, read. Not <laughs> yeah. that maybe the Nevada Independent will pull that together and we'll turn it into a novella or something. Um, <laughs> okay. okay, Michaela, anything else you think the listeners need to know about this case? I would say stay tuned uh, to what the judge says. I'm I'm really excited to see what the judge will say at the end of the trial. Um, Is it so a lot of things will come together then? Okay, so let's talk about that just for a, a second. Is it the judges? I mean, is is it up to the judge to just decide? Okay, either everyone who got a license can move forward, and too bad for all the rest of you. Sorry, I'm ruling against you. Is it that? Is it that simple, or is the decision more nuanced than that? I think it's more nuanced. I think they can all after the preliminary preliminary injunction they could go into another injunction case or an evidentiary case depending on what the judge decides so there might be more testimony that comes out of this or more investigation that comes out of the trial um or or she sides with the state and these licensees are able to go forward but i'm not yeah i'm not sure where everyone in the courtroom is like we never we don't know how it's going to end up Sure. Well, we've never had a case like this mm-hmm. in Nevada, and we've never had a law like this in Nevada. And all, this entire um, industry, it's just so new uh, to everyone. Um, I, I don't think it's probably a surprise to any resident of the state of Nevada that we ended up with a court case uh, of some kind. Um, it, it was a little surprising to me. Um, the 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 sheer number of plaintiffs seems large, but I thought there would be even more. Actually, mm-hmm. um, I'm not sure how. Do you have any information on how these plaintiffs found each other and how these attorneys? So it's we don't. It's not really a class 
it's not equivalent to a class action lawsuit, but we do have a whole bunch of plaintiffs coming together in a single case. Do you, did you, do you have any information on how this all came together in the first place? I know that there was a few initial people applying for lawsuits and then the marijuana industry, there's a lot of players, but a lot of them have connections to one another. So I think that's how it started. There's a couple attorneys representing different groups of plaintiffs, plaintiffs, and then that they came all together to file this larger um, lawsuit against the Department of Taxation. Okay. And then I do – I want to circle back uh, kind of to where we started when we began talking today to the Department of Taxation itself um, and the – individuals who were involved um, in overseeing this application approval process. Have all of the state employees who had a hand in this been on the stand and and have they testified? Or is it a or is it a partial number? I think it's a it's a partial number. Most of the people that were directly involved came and talked who were serving at that time. Even pe- someone who uh, and she served prior, like in the beginning of the application process, and she came in to say how she thinks things have changed or stayed the same. Um, so m- the bigger players have came and testified. Okay. And what is the one, if you, if you had to say, of all the things that a state employee on the stand has admitted or mm-hmm. acknowledged has not been ideal about this process, is there is there one thing that kind of stands out as kind of a big revelation of sorts, or or where in your in your estimation, having heard what both sides have to say, what's been the biggest acknowledgement by the state that's been said out loud in in court? I think Jorge's pupos, um, like him admitting to going to dinners with certain applicants that ended up being awarded, and there was a, a, a attorney that was involved in that that. He had a particular relationship with that I'm expecting we're going to hear more about. So I'm interested um, in his relationship with that attorney. Also, a lot of Cronkite's um, testimony. Uh, there was this case about three, like three, um, sales of marijuana to minors, which is against the ballot question. And I feel like that is also going to be brought up because it was kind of lightly touched on, and I think that's something that is alluded to like come up later on. So sales of mar- sales marijuana of marijuana to, to minors, minors that occurred in dispensaries that already had mm-hmm. licenses is that what we're talking about? Yeah, and an investigation. So another thing that was brought up in court, there was an investigation that started on these businesses, but it was called off because they were self-reported. Um and so they were still able to keep their dispensaries open. Huh. Yeah, that's and- So if you tell on yourself, that doesn't really mm-hmm count against you? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, the department was making the argument, argument that the um, that their transparency, they would rather have to like be in the loop with everything that's going on than like go and try to seek out people because then they don't think that um, these crimes will like be documented. Uh, but we're definitely going to hear more about that is my inkling. Okay, you think, uh, and you, but you've also said that you think this case is wrapping up soon. So you think we're going to hear more about it on Tuesday, hopefully? Tuesday or within the closing statements, like ending with the bang type of thing. Okay, and you'll be, uh, I assume you're going to be in court on Tuesday? Yeah. Okay, so she'll be reporting again. Um, possibly, I guess we'll decide that after we see your notes. We, we make these decisions day to day about whether we have uh, enough information that rises to the level of, of justifying a, a story, right? So um, we'll look forward to that. What else? Uh, I want to ask you a question. Just I have no idea what your answer is going to be. So this is they say never to do that in an um, interview when you're, impl- in, when you're interviewing your own employees. But I'm going to just go ahead out on a limb. What's been your favorite? Has this been your favorite thing that you've done since you came on board with us? Or what do you have a favorite story or something that that you really loved doing since you came on board with us at the beginning of the summer? And if and if so, what was it? That's really hard to say. I've, I feel like I've done so many things for the first time, like the political coverage I've done, um, covering the presidential election. Like that's really exciting for me because I've never done that before as well. This hearing is the first thing I've done. I've been able to do some feature stories um, more in depth, which I haven't had the opportunity to in other internships, kind of either on the Hope for Prisoners. That was another really 
great one I was able to do with my other with the other intern on the team or on this um, homeless student Kyler, Kyler Nipper who's starting who's trying to com- combat mental health. And so there's been a lot of good things. It's hard to pick just one. Yeah, you just, uh, I had almost forgotten already because you've written so many stories. I just realized since you've um, been with us that that Kyler Nipper um, story, but also the Hope for Prisoners story, which was really, I don't care who you are, that was just a heartwarming story about people in prison getting an education and kind of getting a fresh start on, on life and all of the people that were a part of making that happen. Um, and that ties into recidivism issues um, that are big in the state of Nevada because our our prisons, like many states, are overcrowded. Um, there's always a concern with people ending up back in the system, uh, either too soon or, or at all. And so um, I thought that was a great story. And it was in, and it was you you contributed um, in a substantial way, not just to that. Um, but that Kyle Nipper story, which what an astounding young man, if you missed that uh, in the Sunday Indie, Folks, you should take a take time to go and read that. This young man um, who was stabbed with a pencil to the point that he had to have um, surgery, and this was after being bullied unmercifully just for wearing old shoes in school um, and had PTSD from the trauma of the entire situation, um, little by little with a lot of love and help from his family, um, turned the situation around, st- started collecting new shiny new shoes for other kids and then ended up actually starting a charity. He's got his own 501c3 now where they collect hundreds, I think, pairs of shoes now for Yeah, like up in the thousands just for either community for like low-income schools or for homeless. Um his story was really really remarkable to cover and his efforts still he's trying to open up um, a lounge for centered on mental health coverage that's free um and that was a really cool story to hear about and i'm excited to follow up on him and see if he gets any more stuff by the end of the summer yeah um we did a town hall before you came on board we did a a town hall with um, students and parents and some teachers and a couple principals in the district and one of the topics which i was not expecting that was the most talked about when we had the students on stage was mental health mm-hmm. and their concern about not so much their own, um, but their friends and people they knew and talking about how so many of their friends and acquaintances were struggling in some way with problems in the home, with depression, with anxiety, um, just kind of general inability to cope with everything life was throwing at them. And that, in their opinion, there was a lack of understanding, number one, that this exists um, in the middle schools and in the high schools. Um, and number two, kind of a lack of resources um, or a lack of confidence in resources uh, for for students. So, yeah, I thought it was interesting that, um, that Kyler – took that challenge on as well as he coped with his own PTSD and struggles and, and wanted to um, pull a group of people together to kind of offer a place for students to go, right, to talk to basically just to talk about their problems and, and get some help. Yeah, there's a lot of stigma around that stuff. So I know um, Commissioner Weekly also was holding this chat and chew talking about mental health in his community. It was like rallying around and he, that's how I first heard about Kyler because he came to that event and started talking um, about his own, his own mental health um, struggles and how um, giving back has really been able to help him in that process. Okay. Um, any last word? I don't know if you'll be on another Indie Matters show before you leave. So is there, this is your chance. Is there anything else you want to say? <laughs> thank you for listening. And thank you, Eve, for having me this summer. I really oh. had a great time. and I've been learning so, so much. So. Oh, great. We really appreciate that. We've loved having you with us. We've got a great set of interns this summer. We, um, we've we never had this many interns at the same time before. We've, we've got four of them, uh, one in Northern Nevada and three in addition to Michaela here in Southern Nevada. And it's been an awful lot of fun working with them, um, helping them craft their stories. News writing is not uh, as easy as you might think. Um, it's easy to pull, you know, get all your notes down, but you know, then you have to figure out 
that first sentence and then what comes next and and um, learning how to say what's going on and then support it with with quotes and naming your sources. And it, it's, it's pretty tricky. It's pretty complicated. Yeah. So um, it's been fun uh, mentoring uh, all of you. We've really, we've loved uh, having you. Um, as always, I want to encourage our readers to check out the website day in and day out, the NevadaIndependent.com. Um, we've got all kinds of content. There are both news and opinion. Uh, lots of reader op-eds these days, people sending in their strongly worded opinions about the topics that are most important to them. We love publishing op-eds from our readers. So if you have an opinion on a topic it's that's driving you crazy and your family's tired of hearing you talk about it, um, sit down and write a 500 to 1,000 word op-ed. Uh, send it to submissions at com, or you can send them directly to me, which is e at com. John and I will read them, uh, decide whether they're uh, publish worthy from the indie perspective, and then uh, you'll see your words live on the opinion page. And we, we love to do that. Um, that's all we have time for this week here on Indie Matters. As always, um, be sure to subscribe to our daily newsletter, The Daily Indie. And if you're not already a supporter of our grand adventure in nonprofit journalism, um, please do go and support our work on the Support Our Work page. There are so many ways you can donate and different intervals. You can be a recurring member. You can donate just one time. That is all explained on the Support Our Work page. Um, We need every dollar. It's really important, not just so that we can uh, pay our interns. And we do pay them, by the way. We work them hard, but they do get paid. Um, But so we can continue to pay our our great staff to bring you the stories that are the most important um, to you here in Nevada. Thanks for listening. And we look forward to talking and joining you again next week for Indie Matters. Indie Matters.